Well, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10 this morning. And if you have been with us for this series in Revelation, you might be thinking, wow, there's a lot going on in the book of Revelation. And you're exactly right. There are a lot of details, more than we actually have time to stop and deal with. I I don't stop and, and look at the three views of what this means and the four views of what this means. You can study that on your own if you'd like to. We're trying to keep the bigger picture of what is going on in the text. And I'm always... Uh, amazed at how there are different theological approaches to the book of Revelation, but when people, uh, theologians and pastors and so forth, are reading it for the big idea, oftentimes they're coming to the same conclusions about what God is trying to tell his people through this book. In the big picture, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, are bringing the events of salvation history to a climax where they will once and for all, vindicate their holiness, vindicate their word, vindicate their people, we who believe. That's why I've entitled this whole series, The Vindication of the Lord and His People. To vindicate someone is to prove to everyone that they were in the right all along, even though other people acted like they weren't and treated them as such. We've been reading through First and Second Samuel to parallel the rise of David coming to the throne, even as we study Revelation, because Revelation talks about the rise to the throne of David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus. And David comes to that stronghold of Jerusalem, and what do they tell him? You can't come in here. The lame and the blind can defend this city. And God vindicates David in that place in 1 Samuel 5 and vindicates him in the eyes of the Philistines. Yes, he can take it. Yes, he is God's man for the throne. And we're coming to 2 Samuel 7 where God is going to promise David, I will never leave you without an heir for that throne. And we're seeing the, the, the coming to pass, coming to fulfillment of that promise in 2 Samuel 7 as we read Revelation. Years ago, I read a story about a Scottish boy named Harry who had been asked to watch his father's sheep in Scotland up on this huge bluff overlooking the sea. And it was a big deal for Harry, this young boy, to be asked to do a man's job, and so he took it very seriously. But as he's watching the sheep, there was this huge eagle with this uh, seven-and-a-half-foot wingspan who comes in from the coast and grabs one of the lambs and flies off with it. And he chases it, but he can't catch the eagle, and he couldn't have fought it anyway, he didn't think. And the the lamb is carried off. And when Harry ran back breathlessly to tell his father, his father wouldn't believe him. He grew angry, and he said to his son, that's a lie. There haven't been any eagles here in my lifetime. What really happened? Tell me. And Harry's standing there dumbfounded. He doesn't know what to say to his father. And his father says, you've lost that lamb, haven't you? Let it fall down in a hole or something. Any child from the village could have watched those, watched those sheep for a day. And then you're frightened and you run back here and you lie to me. And he took Harry over his knee and, as they say in the south, he wore him out. He took a switch to him. 
Well, Harry had to go back watching the sheep, and as the story unfolds, the eagle returns and tries to take another lamb, and Harry's ready this time. He's got a stick, and he sharpened it, and he goes after that eagle and starts to fight it, but this, this, this eagle is a huge creature. It's got these sharp claws and a, a razor-sharp beak, and it goes after Harry and, and tries to get his eyes, and there's this bloody battle between Harry and this eagle that goes on for quite a bit of the story, but finally, Harry overcomes the eagle and kills it and oh the joy you feel for him when you read the part of the story where harry walks back to the farm his jacket torn off his shirt in rags his head bleeding his one-armed cape with blood and drops that bird at his father's feet vindication and it was an eagle he was not at fault He was wrongly accused and wrongly punished, and now he had proven that he was in the right all along. His father gets a doctor. He waits on him hand and foot, and a couple days later, he takes him down to the village and makes Harry tell the story to everybody so he can show off his son to everybody. Vindication is sweet. But before the time of vindication, there has to be a time where you experience injustice, a time when your innocence is doubted. A time when your faith is questioned, when your character is assassinated. And it's difficult to live through that time of delay as you wait for vindication, as you wait for God to respond. Vindication assumes that there is something to vindicate. And in every generation, there is a remnant of believers who desire to serve God, but we're all living in a world that cares nothing for God who would not believe that there is a holy creator who is sovereign over them, who scorn the idea of a crucified and risen Savior, and who mock and marginalize believers. In fact, in many places of the world, and maybe it's coming to the U.S. sooner than we think, believers are not merely mocked or canceled. They're persecuted for their faith and sometimes even killed for being a believer in Christ. And when a culture persecutes someone, It is the ultimate rejection in that culture. They're saying, you are in the wrong. You are unfit to live with us because what you believe and what you stand for is a lie. But we know it's not a lie. We know that in the words of Peter in John 6, only Jesus has the words of life. Unless we embrace him, we are done for. So in the book of Revelation, God the Father graciously gives to the Son the revelation about the great day of vindication when the sovereign rule of God over the world through his judgment will be unmistakably on display for the world to see. And it will be shown to those who have suffered and even died for the witness of the gospel that they were in the right all along. They were telling the truth. They were embracing what was right. And those who reject and hate God and will not repent and embrace his death for their sins, including those who have killed believers in Revelation, they will perish in his wrath. But those who are vindicated will reign with the Lord over the earth, basking in his glory. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted. Does it make sense? It does if you look at the big picture, if you look at vindication. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus points to the climax of his redemptive plan. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. That means they're lying about you. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That reward may be dim here on earth. I mean, we might not experience vindication in this brief temporal world. Sometimes God allows us a little taste of that, but often not because he's trying to keep us on our knees. He's trying to grow us and stretch us into his image. But we will certainly experience it then. And vindication is sweet. And the promise of vindication fills us with hope. We are encouraged to keep living for God, to keep ministering for God, to keep spreading the word of God. If we know that in the end, God will keep his promises to us. And the Lord gives the prophecy of revelation to his servant John so he can deliver this message of hope uh, to the churches. So starting in Revelation chapter 4, which is where we started, John begins to describe the unfolding events of this vindication. In chapters 4 and 5, we find John describing the throne room of heaven, which we discover is a heavenly temple or tabernacle with an altar of sacrifice and an altar of incense. And God himself is on the throne. This is command central of the universe. And his hand has a scroll sealed with seven seals. This is the scroll that contains the message of this ultimate vindication on the earth. And only the lamb is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll because he made this vindication possible through his death and resurrection. So in chapter 6, the lamb, the Lord Jesus, in the throne room of heaven, begins to open the seven seals, one seal at a time. And as Jesus opens the seals, John perceives events taking place on the earth. In this time period that we've already discussed, which we call the tribulation period. And I don't want you to get confused about so many judgments in Revelation. I know we've got the seven seal judgments, right? We've got the seven trumpet judgments. Later on in chapter 16, we've got the seven bowl judgments. But think about it for a second. This scroll contains all of the judgments. When it is opened, the seven trumpet judgments come out of the scroll, and the seven bowl judgments come out of the blast of the seventh trumpet. So all of the judgments are contained in the scroll. The scroll is the word, it's the revelation of what is going to take place on the earth. And the harbinger of these judgments are seen as the seals are broken. They're the general idea of what's going to happen at this time period. But once the scroll is unrolled, the judgments begin to happen. They begin to be read out. When the lamb opens the first four seals, a general terror comes upon the earth, represented by four riders and four different colored horses. They unleash war and famine and bloodshed from violence, people slaughtering one another, especially Christians. Disease, killing by wild beasts, these are general conditions that are on the earth during the tribulation. And when the Lamb opens the fifth seal, what we see, remember, are the souls of those under the altar in heaven crying out for vindication. And they're saying, how long, O Lord, who, who is sovereign and true? 
before you avenge our blood. And the idea is not that they they want God to get back at those people who killed them. The idea is when are we going to be shown to be in the right? And when is your truth going to be shown to be in the right? And they're comforted and told to wait a little while longer, a space of time before vindication happens. And immediately when the sixth seal is opened, there are earthquakes and great destruction on the earth, and unbelievers are calling for the caves and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the face of God and the Lamb, who are pouring out their wrath upon them. And so what we see in seal six is God's response to the prayers of his saints, which we see in Revelation often drive the judgments. God is responding to the cries of his people and vindicating them. Now, we find this interlude after the sixth seal. And this is important. Before the lamb opens the seventh seal, there is an interlude that is chapter seven. In chapter seven, the lamb says, there's not going to be any severe judgments on the earth until those who trust in me are sealed with the seal of God. And by this sealing, the Lord is saying, this one is mine. No uh, no person is going to harm him. Nothing is going to touch him unless I say so. It doesn't mean that believers are not going to suffer during this period, those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period, but it means that God is their God, and, and sometimes they're not touched by the trials that come on the earth. So there are, they are sealed in chapter 7. In chapter 8, the judgment picks up again. The Lamb opens the seventh seal, which means the entire scroll can now be read. And when it's finally open. The contents of the scroll caused silence to fall upon heaven, the beginning of chapter 8 says, for the space of half an hour. And it seems to be that everyone in heaven is standing still, feeling this horrible awe about what is about to happen on the unwitting people on the face of the earth. Then John sees an angel bringing incense with the prayers of the saints to the throne of God. You know those prayers? that are being cried out under the altar, they're included here in these prayers before the throne of God. And so God says, okay, this is it. This is the day they're waiting for, and he begins to judge the earth. It's an answer to their prayers, and it's an answer to our prayers also. And each of the seven angels blow their trumpets, each in turn. At the blasts of the first four trumpets, a series of wrath is unleashed upon the earth, which we've looked at a couple of different times. This is God systematically bringing destruction upon his own creation. In these first four uh, trumpet blasts, every part of the created order from the first five days of creation is attacked and greatly destroyed, impacting the world economy, food and water supplies. It, It basically is causing the earth to be uninhabitable. But the last three trumpets are also called the three woes at the end of chapter eight, because these trumpets focus not on the physical uh, non-animate uh, parts of the inanimate parts of the of the earth. They focus upon human beings, specifically those who are not sealed by God. Trumpets five and six are in Revelation chapter nine. When the fifth trumpet blows, unbelievers are tormented by these demon locusts for up to five months, and they beg to die, but death will not come to them. And when the sixth trumpet blows, about two billion of them finally get their wish to die. They are slaughtered by the demon horsemen on hideous horses. It's the, it's the, the corruption of the created order, the, the hideous uh, creatures that, that corrupt what God graciously created in the creation, and it's an attack on the pinnacle of his creation, which is humanity, the whole earth coming apart. Now, we've seen what happens with six of the seven trumpets. 
but the seventh trumpet has not yet sounded. What about the seventh trumpet? Well, before the seventh trumpet, there is a second interlude, and that brings us to chapter 10 that we're in this morning. We don't find this seventh trumpet in chapter 10. We find an interlude. Just like the pause after seal six before seal seven, we have a pause between trumpet six and trumpet seven. And still, then, we are waiting for the full completion of God's vindication. And in this chapter, what we're going to find is the announcement of God that it's the time for fulfillment. It will linger no more. But the end is going to now come quickly since these other trumpets have blown. This text in Revelation 10 announces the climax has arrived. So let's read what John describes here in Revelation chapter 10. He says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow of his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, we could all do this if we went down to the shore, but this is a much bigger picture. Huge block of land, one leg, a body of water, the other, a huge angel. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, John said, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Verse 8, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. That's the only reason you would ever go and talk to this big angel is if God had told you to do that. Give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took a little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, I want to call your attention to what I think is the heart of this text, which we see in verses 6 and 7. This magnificent, huge angel swears by the eternal God but they, that there will be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. In this interlude, God acknowledges that there has been a period of time between the promise of vindication and the fulfillment of vindication, a waiting period. So the angel swears that there will be no more delay, no more time. Literally, that's what the text says, by the way. No more time. I think the AV, uh, the the King James bears this out. There will be no more time. It doesn't mean time ends. It means that there's no more delay. No more time is going to go by. 
before the fulfillment, when the seventh angel blows that seventh trumpet, the more severe and intense judgments will be poured out from the seven bowls all at once, one after the other, on the earth. Judgments so severe, Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, that unless God had shortened that time, no one on earth will survive. And while the earth is reeling and staggering from these intense judgments, Jesus Christ breaks through the cloud on the white horse in chapter 19, returning in power and glory to destroy any enemy left standing against him, carrying out his judgment on the enemies of the gospel and establishing his kingdom in which his people will reign with him before being ushered into the new earth. That's the climax. That's the ultimate vindication. And this chapter is telling us when that seventh trumpet blows, it's all going to, ca- it's all going to happen. It's all going to come right away. Christ's second coming and everything that results from that coming. So in a real sense, the seventh trumpet is what announces the fulfillment of everything God has promised. So chapter 10 is a really dramatic point in the scriptures where it is revealed that with the seventh trumpet, all will finally be brought to conclusion. The church has waited for centuries, millennia. And now we're reading where it's finally arriving. It's like graduation day for some of you, that you cannot believe when it finally gets here. Some of you don't know that yet, but you will. Or a more biblical metaphor, it's like a wedding day. And there are several of you here who are anticipating that day coming up really soon. And when you start counting down, you know, you're in the hundreds to wedding day, you know, counting down. And, and it's kind of disappointing to think that it's that far off. But before you know it, you're in the 90s and 80s. And pretty soon you're like, it's just around the corner. It's going to happen. Then you start getting really nervous and emotions start going really high. Okay. Uh, this is what it's like. And then you come to the day and it is the wedding day. You can't even believe it. It's here. Well, this is the day, the angel says. The day of ultimate vindication. We should call it the day. It's finally arrived. No more delay. Now, I want to pose a question that will help us to draw out of this chapter what God is telling us. You have to understand, there's so many ways to look at these, these passages when you come to them. And I, I seriously have never preached the Revelation before. I keep telling you that. And I, I, I hope I'm uncovering what's there. But it is really difficult sometimes to say, how do you put all this together? But I think there's a question we can ask which will help us this week and next week. I'll continue this to, to, to figure out what is going on in this passage. And the question is simply this. Why do we have to wait? Why is there a waiting period between the, God, the time God promises us something in his word through revelation and the time that we see the promise take place? Why does the mighty angel have to say, I swear by the eternal God that there will be no more delay? Why is there a delay between the promises of God for the future and the fulfillment in the first place? This occurs to us at very practical levels, doesn't it? We experience a need. So we cry out to the Lord who said, Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be open unto you. This is in Matthew 7, 7 and 8. And to make sure Jesus, uh, to, for Jesus to make sure that we understood him, he repeats this. He says, uh, 
Ask and you receive, knock and you will find, or, or, or seek and you, I'm sorry, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened unto you. And then he says, for everyone who asks receives, and those who seek will find, and those who knock, it shall be opened unto them. He says the same thing twice. So we ask and we seek and we knock. But then we, there's another verb that happens often. We wait. We wait for God to meet the need. Why is waiting involved? If God is going to provide for us, why doesn't he just do it right away? Looking at the big picture at the beginning of Revelation, we read these words in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Why does he mention those who pierced him? Because this is about vindication. They will say, oh no, it was right all along. And at the end of Revelation, so we have this this bracketed promise at the beginning and at the end. Behold, I am coming soon, tacos, quickly, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then in verse 20, he says it again. He who testifies of these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, make it fast. Do what you said you will do. But the promise is still unfulfilled today, two millennia later, practically. In fact, Peter, even in 2 Peter 3, addresses this. He says people will scoff, asking, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where's this promise? And Peter takes time to answer this challenge. I think we're going to look at this text a little more closely next week, but he takes time to answer this challenge. He says, in essence, you know, Noah heard this same kind of scoffing in his day. And then the flood came, and it did not work out very well for the scoffers. And and we believe this. You and I believe this as, as believers in Christ because we've been saved by God's grace, and we've been given a heart of faith. But it still doesn't answer the question fully, why is there this waiting period? When Christ says he's coming quickly, why can't it be quick? I think that Revelation 10 helps us to answer this question. And you know what? Every answer has to do with the nature of the word of God, his revelation about what is real and what is going to happen and what it all means. You may have noticed that the divine word is a major theme of this chapter. In verse 2, if you'll look there, notice the angel holds an open scroll in his hand, which indicates open revelation from God. Some argue, some commentators argue, that this is the, the scroll that Jesus has opened now. He's broken the seven seals, and he's opened the scroll, and the angel has that scroll in his hand. Others say, no, this is a a scroll. This this is a portion of that scroll, because it's a little scroll. Some say, no, it's a different scroll altogether, okay? But everybody agrees it's a revelation from God. It's the word of God represented there. Then in verse 4, there are seven thunders which sound, which apparently reveal something to John... And here we learn that throughout all of these visions and revelation, John has been taking notes. I don't know if it's a kind of Greek shorthand, you know, uh, but he's been writing things down in a scroll. We don't, we don't, he's told to do it in Revelation 1, but we don't see him actively doing this, that sort of being the amanuensis of, of God to give us this word through Jesus Christ. He's been taking notes because he says he's about to write down what the thunder said and a voice comes from heaven, probably the Lord himself, because the Lord told him to write. 
And he says, don't know, don't write that down. Do you, not, do you want to know what the, um, the seven thunders said? Well, the answer is we have no idea because John didn't write it down. There's a lot of speculation about what those thunders said. We're not going to talk about that because obviously the Lord didn't want us to know right now. But in Revelation 10, 5 through 7, in verse 7, the angel speaks of the mystery of God that would be fulfilled. And he adds, just as God announced to his servants, the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament prophets, this is a reference to the prophetic word of God that was happening in the Old Testament. This mystery, we'll talk about the mystery next week. Then in verses 8 through 11, John is told to eat the scroll. Now this might seem sort of odd to you that he's told to eat the scroll. But it's the same thing that God asks Jeremiah to do. And later Ezekiel to do during the, the passages where they're called to their prophetic ministry. They were instructed to eat the words of God or to eat the scroll containing God's words. And in this way, they were internalizing the message, making it a part of them so that they would faithfully proclaim the word of God to the people that God was sending them to. Jeremiah even said, I tried not to talk about it. He goes, every time I talk about it, they're throwing stones at me and beating me up. And I, I try to not proclaim the word of God. He says, every time I, tried to, I did that, there's this fire that would come up within me and I had to proclaim God's word. So what then is John told to do here? He's told to eat the scroll, to internalize the word. And then he says at the end, in verse 11, you again must prophesy about many people and nations and languages and kings. And John is going to do that. When we read the next chapters, we're going to see John prophesying about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. He's going to give us a picture of what's going on in the earth politically before God comes and judges the nations through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, why isn't the word of God fulfilled right away? Why the delay between the promise and the fulfillment? The delay between promise and fulfillment, I think, is explained by three aspects of the divine word. And what these aspects do is they actually give us hope and they teach us to be patient as we wait for the Lord's return. I think that this delay is explained, first of all, by the authority of the divine word. And that's what we're going to cover this morning and then, and then leave the second two for, the, for next week, we need to be looking at some Old Testament texts to really get two and three. So I need to be some more time, okay? So you're used to this, right? Uh, that's the great thing about being a pastor and preaching a series. You can just leave off where you want to, you know, and, and, and pick back up again. But it gives us time to think about it and to read it for ourselves during the week and to, to meditate on these things. So the first uh, character of the word or aspect of the word is that it has authority from God. The second we'll look at is the mystery of the divine word, which we see in verse 7. And finally, the proclamation of the divine word. So this morning, let's focus our attention on the authority of the divine word because the word of God is an expression. The word of God is an expression of the sovereign authority of God over the world. That's what it is. God rules. He created and he rules and he knows what's going on and he knows what we need to know. Everything that God said would happen by now has happened by now exactly the way that God said it would in his divine word. Everything that God says is true about the world and about his children right now that's going on is true. And we realize that when, when Romans 8 says that the spirit bears with, witness with our spirit that we're the sons of God. We feel that. We sense that at times in our lives. 
and also everything that God said will happen that has not yet happened will happen in exactly the way that God says it will. Because the word of God is tied to the sovereign will of God. That word will take place in God's timing according to his good pleasure alone. The disciples were reminded of this in Acts 7. When I should say Acts 1, actually, in verse 7. They were wondering, uh, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? They're talking about the end, the climax, the fulfillment. I mean, after all, the Father promised to the prophets centuries ago. And, and you came and you, you declared the gospel of the kingdom. And you rose from the dead. I mean, isn't it about time? I mean, it's, everything's been taken care of now, right? Can it come now? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. God's word is an extension of that authority. And just as God rules over what happens, he also rules over when it happens. It's just that the time or the, the, the when is not always immediately apparent to us because of his sovereign will for our lives. Now, we see the sovereignty expressed, I think, in chapter 10 by the actions of the angel at the beginning of the chapter. I want you to look here. This is a huge, mighty angel, stunning in appearance. Verse 1 says that he came down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face like the sun. So maybe his face was so bright that it emanated this rainbow like we talked about, like we saw with God's throne, this sort of halo from the light emanating from his face. And it says his legs were like pillars of fire. And the picture should remind us of the fiery, cloudy manifestation of God's presence that we see in the Old Testament. And it should also remind us of the description of the glorious risen Christ that we see in chapter 1, where John says that Jesus' face was shining as the sun. Whoever this angel is, he's associated with the presence of God. And in his hand, he holds a portion of the word of God, perhaps the very portion that John is about to prophesy about after chapter 10. But this scroll containing the word is opened. It's revealed. And bearing this word, the angel does something here. He sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And by claiming land and sea, the angel is giving a picture of the authority of God's word over the world. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. You are answerable to the revelation of God. It's similar to the gesture that someone in ancient history might have done when they conquered a territory, and the, the conqueror would ceremoniously put his foot on the land and claim it. And if we have any doubt about the angel's message in claiming land and sea, I want you to notice what the angel says in verses 5 and 6. He says... Uh, uh, he swore by him, this is verse 6, he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. God rules over all because he created all. And how did he create it all? He created it through his word. God said, let light be. And light was. 
He said, let there be an expanse, and it was so. God said, let the waters be gathered together, and it was so. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. He said, let there be lights in the heavens, and it was so. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and it was so. Whenever God spoke, Genesis chapter 1, whenever God spoke, his creation obeyed. And when it obeyed, blessing followed. God saw it was good. So God established his authority over the earth right away. And when Adam and Eve sinned against the authority of God, God announced to the serpent, as well as to Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3.15, there is one coming from the woman's offspring who will bruise or crush the serpent's head. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Eve conceives and bears Cain. And she names him Cain because Cain means gotten or means received. Here he is, she said. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. He's going to crush the serpent's head. He'll turn the wrong in the world back to right. He will lead us back into paradise. But Cain was not the one God was talking about. And that becomes evident when Cain actually kills his brother. He's not a bringer of life into the world. He's a bringer of death into the world. He doesn't crush the serpent's head. He follows the serpent's lead. When God spoke of the woman's seed, he had a particular person in mind, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. So Adam and Eve waited for this delay. They waited for the promise to be fulfilled, not only in God's way, but in God's time. You see, the sovereignty of God forms the basis for the certainty of the fulfillment of God's word, as well as the timing of that fulfillment. The delay should never cause us to doubt God's authority or control or faithfulness to his word. The delay should actually teach us to recognize God's authority and his control and increase our faith as we wait for him to vindicate. Revelation chapter 10 says that sometimes the word of God is opened for us, like the scroll in the hand of the mighty angel. If in verse 2, the Greek text uses this word that means little scroll, and it describes this little scroll with the word having been opened. For those of you who study Greek, it's a a passive participle, an aorist passive participle. It's it's an adjective describing the book. It's sitting there open. Somebody's opened it. And it's most likely because John is going to be asked to eat it, that the scroll, the scroll is little. Uh, or if you imagine this big angel with a scroll in his hand, any scroll in the angel's hand is going to look really little, okay? So it's a little scroll for that reason, but it is the word of God. The most important idea here is that it's open so its contents can be read. Because God in his sovereignty does not delight in hiding everything for us or making us wait for everything. John is going to ingest the contents of the scroll and then prophesy about them later on in the book. But I want you to contrast this with the seven thunders. John is about to record for us that part of the divine revelation. And the voice from heaven says, seal up what the seven thunders have said, verse 4. Do not write it down. So in chapter 10, we have a word that is opened and a word that is sealed. And this decision is made by God's authority. 
There are so many things that are not open to us in the word of God. But there are also things that God wants us to know. There are things that he doesn't want us to know. He wants us to trust him. There are hidden things, and there are times of delay. And the people of God, I think, have always felt this tension. How often in the Psalms do we see something like this in Psalm 13? I'll close with this this morning, where the psalmist is asking the question, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be be exalted over me? I mean, does this sound familiar to anybody here? Have we ever asked the Lord, okay, how long do we have to wait for this? Lord, we're trusting you. How long before you break through this problem and fix it? We pray, our Father who art in heaven, what's the holdup? What's the delay? He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. And David, as we even saw here today in, in 2 Samuel 5, David's known the vindication of God. But here he's waiting for it. He can't figure out why God is taking so much time. Hurry up. Don't you realize I'm in trouble? Don't you realize how this is going to mess up my plans if you don't answer me right away? Why the anxiety? The anxiety comes in our lives because we don't like it when we don't know when God is going to take care of things for us. We don't like that. It's a natural human response. It's not just a natural human response. It's a natural response for believers. I mean, think about it. Even the souls of the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 5 or chapter 6 are crying out, asking the same question, how long? But if we will submit to God's sovereign will in the timing of his work, then we will begin to trust him for all things that he has clearly revealed to us. That's why I think David settles on this answer in verses 5 and 6. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. There are a lot of things that we will not know. Things God knows it is not good for us to know. Things that we may never know. We think when we get to heaven, we're going to know everything. No, 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 no. They're going to be mysteries of God we'll never come to the bottom of. But we do know and can rest confidently in this, the steadfast love of God. God's bountiful care. Even if in his sovereign design, we have to wait to see this. I don't know what you are going through, what you are facing right now, what you have faced in the past. But I'm telling you, God wants us to know we can rejoice, we can sing, we can be glad because he will vindicate us. And in the meantime, we pray for his grace that we might trust him as our sovereign Lord, that we might know who he is and that we might rest in his bountiful care. Father, thank you.